Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of post-acute and long-term care issues that you wrestle with every day. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. This Journal Club session was held on March 30th, 2022. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to welcome everyone to our June FAMDA Journal Club, where we're going to talk about achieving quality now. If you bear with me, I am on Central Time, so making sure I'm at the right time, <laughs> which is as 11 a.m., but just trying not to trick my mind. So I do know it's 12 p.m. and we are going to go ahead and get started. So I want to um, share with you. Um, we're going to have a couple of guest speakers, and I want to share with you um, first that this week past and ending today has been CNA week, and um, we just want to honor all of the CNAs who are working in our field, uh, in, in our buildings, doing all of the hard work that they're doing. We truly appreciate every one of them and all of the hard work that um, goes into doing that job. So I wanted to start by talking about where we're at. And I think we know many of the things that are impacting our nursing homes and the challenges that we've had. We've talked about this quite a bit on our journal clubs in the past. And in thinking about the current state of the state, I know that um, we, are, we are still dealing with staffing challenges. Um, there have been some more insights and, and requests of us being made um, from by CMS and with the latest uh, uh, updates that came um, as part of um, President Biden's state of the state, we saw that we had even more um, things to address for the nursing home community. So infection control and antibiotic stewardship remains a top concern, readmissions and preventable hospitalizations. And then um, psychotropic stewardship. Uh, we, we know we need to do a lot of work around that. When we look at Florida numbers, something that was interesting to me that was presented at a recent Florida Healthcare Association quality meeting, we looked at where we are at when we are ranked nationally. And as you can see, when we look at the number of hospitalizations per 1,000 long stay resident days, if we're taking this ranking out of 50 states, we're not doing so well there. We also have a challenge around RN turnover during the during the past year. And about that psychotropic stewardship, we see that um, we're not doing as well as I would hope we would be doing, given a lot of initiatives that we had um, pre-pandemic around the short stay and long stay residents using antipsychotic medications. So. When we were at this meeting um, with the Florida Healthcare uh, Association, something that was presented to us really showed that there was a lot of work that we needed to be done. And our QIO addressed reducing emergency department visits, readmissions, and infection control. 
And for Florida, what was really alarming was that we were at the upper level for all of those, um, those challenges. So we know we have a lot of work. And I think that um, is something that we've been talking about endlessly. But I wanted to really bring in to light, you know, what, what we're going to focus in on today, which is about how do we achieve quality now? We have a lot of strong leaders in the state of Florida working on these issues every single day. And I wanted to bring them to the floor and have them uh, have a discussion with us about what do we need to do to achieve quality now? And I have both Lynn and Amina here, and I'm going to allow them both um, time to introduce themselves. I'm going to stop sharing. And Amina, why don't you go first? Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Sanders. Thank you for having me. Um, Thank you for everybody that's uh, on that Zoom right now. Thank you for joining us. My name is Amina Dobuson. I am the Vice President of Clinical Services for Ventura Services. I also um, serve as the Chair of um, the Florida Healthcare Senior Clinician Group and also um, the Vice President for Fadona. So it's a pleasure for me to be with those strong leaders, Lane and Dr. Sanders. Thank you. And Lynn, why don't you go next? Okay, thank you very much for the invite. I'm looking forward to this discussion. I am a currently a consultant pharmacist with Polaris Pharmacy. Um, I'm also an assistant adjunct professor at NOVA where I teach geriatric pharmacy. Um, I also teach the geriatric initiation course for NOVA and I'm part of the quality cabinet meeting. I've been an expert witness. Um, I also have been chosen to help do the NAPLEX examination, review questions for the boards. And um, I lecture for Fadana, Florida Healthcare, a lot of different things and just looking forward to this. Perfect. And before we dive deep into discussions, I wanna share something. Um, that Lynn shared with us. If you give me a moment, I'm gonna bring it up. And Lynn, you tell me where you wanna start with this and when you can see my screen. Oh, um, I, can see, I can see it. Yeah, you were sharing some things about the challenges that we're seeing around deprescribing and the fact that this is a real issue when we think about readmissions. Um, so I'm gonna start from you and you tell me to just advance or go down and maybe walk us through what, what, you, what you've been finding. Okay, um, absolutely. One of the biggest challenges for readmissions, particularly from a pharmaceutical standpoint, which ultimately is a lot of what the readmissions um, are surrounded by, is um, deprescribing. And with deprescribing, what we're trying to do is decrease related problems, decrease the mortality, obviously, decrease the hospital readmissions, falls, things like that. These are all things that increase hospital readmiss uh, readmissions. And then we're trying to increase the quality of life and functional status. So you can move on one. Now, whenever you have any kind of a program or, or deprescribing, whatever it is you're doing, there's always going to be challenges to that. 
And the guidelines, if you look for medications, are actually published to start medications, to begin therapeutic treatment, not, not to end it, not to you know, start gradual dose reductions and get rid of it. New disease conditions require newer and more expensive options. We don't have a lot of um, data on some of these new medications that are coming out and how the patients are responding to it. And to be honest, the pharmaceutical industry doesn't fund deprescribing. Uh, prescribers may be concerned about legal implications, like uh, what happens if they um, do do a reduction um, or deprescribe and then the patient fails or so a, a lot of um, education needs to go on that and psychiatry they're actually being reimbursed per resident and, and per regime you can move on please so when we're addressing polypharmacy um, the who has a prevalence of inappropriate meds anywhere between 11.5 and 62.5%. That, that is a huge number, particularly in the, um, the long-term care, the elderly people that a lot of us are treating. Polypharmacy is a major problem. A lot of times we end up giving a medication and then treating a side effect of the med with another medication. So that's something that we're always looking at. There's a greater uh, risk of adverse drug reactions. And then that's where I was talking about that cascading effect. We give a medication, the patient gets, um, loses cognition, um, sleepiness, whatever the case is. And then we end up giving another medication. The patient may have a fall. It, it's, um, it's something that as a consultant pharmacist and prescribers and nurses, we need to be aware of. And the symptoms of polypharmacy, sometimes I think we're looking at this, be confusing it with aging. We say, oh, the person, they're older, we expect it a little bit, you know, they're gonna have a decreased cognition. The person is gonna maybe have a shuffle in their walk. There are a lot of different uh, things that we assign just to old age when actually it really could be polypharmacy, not just the tiredness, the sleepiness, but also let's not forget constipation, um, fecal impaction can be a sentinel event. Mm -hmm. So poly polypharmacy definitely is decreasing the quality of life and unnecessary expense. And in the long-term care, CMS actually applies this under unnecessary medication. Next, please. So I'm not gonna go through these. What I did is I just attached a couple algorithms that can be used by anyone either for, I have um, anti-hyperglycemics here, I believe. I also have um, benzodiazepines, proton pump inhibitors. And what these are, are just ways of starting to deprescribe that are real and that people can use. Um, you're looking at, for instance, this antipsychotic, like you're looking at psychosis, aggression, agitation. So can we recommend deprescribing and then looking at disease states associated with it? Is it dementia? Well, we know there's black box warnings with antipsychotic medications. And one of the bigger things that I wanted to really push on this is 
monitor one to two weeks during that duration of tapering. I, I see a lot of times with the psychiatrists and, and other um, practitioners, the person wasn't responding well on a very low dose of an antipsychotic, which they might have only been getting histaminic effects. And what happens is we go from 25 milligrams, I'm just going to give an example of Seroquel, to 200. There, there was no um, taking a few minutes or a week or a day or a month or, and the same with tapering. If you're gonna to start to taper a medication, please consider tapering from 100 to 75 to 50. If you go from 100 milligrams a day of a medication like Seroquel or, or any antipsychotic, and then down to 25, you, you're not going to get a desired result. And I really believe you're setting up a lot of the uh, patients for failure. Mm -hmm. So that's what I had for. Yeah, thank you for yeah. that. That was, that was great. And, you know, I will tell you, I saw a once it taking care of a hospice resident. I saw a, a Seroquel like sliding scale once that was actually written as an order. And after I picked myself off the floor, it DC'd all of that. Um, I realized that we, we really need to, to, to think about how we are starting um, antipsychotics and bringing them up. So I'm, I'm glad you, you ended with the antipsychotics because that psychotropics, yeah. a huge issue. Something yeah. that, as you saw from those um, leading uh, um, quality measures we're not doing well on as a state. Uh, we've seen articles in um, the New York Times talking about what are they giving my mother? <laughs> you know, all these things that are picked up by the media that um, they don't understand really. Billboards. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah, billboards. billboards. Now, Same. if you drive around Florida, it, it, yes. anyone who's not from Florida, come down. You could, you could just do some sightseeing with our billboards talking about that you're... Um, your parent get the wrong medication where they prescribed a benzodiazepine or antipsychotic. What do we need to do to really educate not only our, our when, when I say facilities, I mean everyone in the facility. So not only the nurses, but the providers so that we can get in front of this and really reduce antipsychotic use, um, inappropriate antipsychotic use. One and I'll direct that to Lynn and then Amina, I'm going to ask you to jump in. Thanks, I'm sorry. Um, one of the big things that I have done, I, I also have some slides on the psychotropic stewardship, but one of the biggest things that has been very effective is um, educating the psychiatrists and as well as the um, attending physicians. I've been having a lot of roundtable discussions at you know, if you go to Morton's or you go to a nice place, the physicians tend to show up. And then I have a live audience, captivated audience, and they can't go anywhere. Um, but that has been very helpful. And when we get to the psychotropic stewardship portion that I have, um, I have had a lot, a lot of success going from anywhere from 26% of antipsychotics down to 4%. So I'll share that with you in, in a little while. Perfect. Amina, any thoughts? 
Oh, yes. Um, psychotropic use is a big challenge for us in long-term care. It, it, it is huge. It comes from the patient coming from the hospital that they were on so many different med and then they come to us and then getting the psychiatrist to see, okay, what is really this patient need? Why do we have those poor elderly women or men and having held old PRN? You know, we don't need those things to just handle. We know how bad it is for the elderly. So, and they be, put them at risk for fall. They get more confused and everything. And then now we have to figure out what's working, then find what's working and maintain it. So it's like the whole work start, you know, end up on our shoulder because in the hospital, that was not the priority. They go for either a hip surgery and something else. And then if you decided you could not sleep, okay, they're gonna call the doctor and then just adding something and adding something. And Jocelyn said, yes, you just prescribed something if we were really doing a good assessment, knowing the patient was correct, correctly diagnosed in order for us to treat the patient correctly, we will know that the med gonna take time to actually work, especially psychotropic. It's an average, like I would say white lane, like three to four weeks that, you know, for most of them is the reality. So now for something not working in two weeks, we just added another things. What we do into those patients, remember as we aging, our metabolism is not the same. So now we're putting all those medication, which making the patient at higher risk for adverse reaction. So, and then we're talking about return to the hospital, what happened? Oh, we're gonna send this patient for altered mental status because she, she becomes so confused. She's become hallucinated. So that's what stewardship, psycho, um, anti, um, psychotropic um, stewardship program, it's really a good way for anybody that wants to cut to really trying to target psychotropic to do it because anything that you have to do to see the outcome, you have to have a clear process in place, how you implement it, how you're gonna follow up and you must be consistent at doing it. That's the only way. So um, I will let Lynn dial into that more when we get to that psychotropic um, stewardship. But yeah, that is really, really, even I would say we even have more patients coming that either need or that on psychotropic after the pandemic, really. Either whatever the psychiatry um, problem, mental health problem they have never really treated. And then from the hospital, that was just the behavior, not actually the disease that was being you know, treated. And then we end up with it. And then we have to deal with it in long-term care. So yeah, let's talk more about that. Um, we, we're seeing, we're getting our um, patients, let's say they're coming in short stay or they're returning they went out to the hospital long-term um, care resident goes to the hospital, comes back. Now they're on antipsychotics. They're being treated for the um, imaginary urinary tract infection. What impact have we seen to um, our approaches around antibiotic stewardship and infection control? Well, um, like, I'm sorry, Mina. Like the um, psychotropic stewardship, I also have, and, and Amina as well, a lot of places have adopted per regulation for CMS an antibiotic stewardship program. But I, I think we needed to go 
a little bit further. And I, I know in um, a lot of Amina's homes and a lot of the facilities in South Florida, what we've done is we've actually made a policy and procedure that we have seven pillars that they are required to follow each facility. And I, I think we're all aware of what a McGreer's is and it, what it is if, if you're not, it, it's like a testing. So before we start saying, oh, look, they have a little altered mental status, quick, do a UTI, quick, do this, quick, you know, start. Um, we're doing checkoffs making sure that they meet at least two to three to four of the criteria prior to just that knee-jerk reaction of putting into an antibiotic. So that's, that's one way that we found. And, and also limiting the amount of people that can pick up the phone and call that attending and say, hey, Mrs. So-and-so, this is occurring. So once you start start putting systems like that in place and it has to be just the DON and a DON, a unit manager, and they have, you have to show that you've done your um, critique beforehand. It, 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 it does become helpful. Yeah. Amina, yeah. anything to add? Oh, antibiotic <laughs> misuse, overuse in our population, it's huge. It's huge. It's, it's really big. I would say um, we did a little bit of progress right before the pandemic. If you look at some data like um, 2017, 2019, but we know what happened during the pandemic in 2020. Um, with COVID, we know Zitromycin, you know, um, between March going all the way to like June or July, that antibiotic was like, because every time somebody would either tested positive with COVID or exposed, somebody would say, get the Z back, right? Get the cocktail. And then again, so now you're like, oh, where do I go with antibiotic stewardship? Because all of those people, many of them really didn't really need the antibiotic. So it is really a, a call you know, to everybody's attention to go back and focus of antibiotic stewardship program. Because if we looked at, we'll have data that says in long-term care that any given time on any facility, you have at least 10% of your patient that's receive antibiotic. By the end of the year, if you look at everybody that's been antibiotic between 45 to 75, that is high. That like 75% of our population that during the time that they're with us, they were in some type of antibiotic. And then the sad part is there are studies that show between 45 to even up to 60, those antibiotics could be misused or they don't have the right antibiotic that was ordered. Because we know we've seen it, antibiotic that ordered just because Len pointed out the nurse fall and so the patient cough, the patient this, and somebody just put the patient in an antibiotic. Now, if it was a case that warrant with they should in many cases get some lab, it takes what? Three to what, five days to figure out that this antibiotic right. that I started was not the right one, okay, for us to change it. But that's still really good that in that three days, somebody makes sure they do that, but sometimes, it's not cut that the patient, and then I seen it, which is sad, it goes a whole seven days. That's when you started a whole new cycle with another new antibiotic. And we know if we do an antibiotic stewardship, having criteria, telling them 
here is the McGill criteria you're gonna use for the GI, for um, respiratory, for your skin and all that. Well, the best practice for C. diff and UTI is to use the CDC guideline, but it's gonna take a lot of teaching with the staff to empower it. And to lean point, many times the nurses don't feel really comfortable to tell a doctor, no, we don't need to start the antibiotic. This is, can I do A, B, C, D first? So that's what is crucial. Not only we're we gonna teach them and empower, but our leaders, DON, ADON, infection prevention is at the facility, making sure on a daily basis, they review those antibiotics. Now with staffing, I can tell you it's hard because sometimes the DON has to be on the card. So she doesn't get to dial into all this because she's doing the work of a nurse. And then what that do to us, it takes another day or another two days before that DON, that ADON or somebody else catch up to that. But yes, this is a huge fight. That's a, you know, one of, you know, the priority for CDC It's on a part of the whole World Health Organization to decrease antibiotic misuse. And us, we kind of really 2020 with the staffing getting like getting hit and again take so many steps back with antibiotic stewardship. Now, I mean, so I want to make sure and I, and I acknowledge everyone who's putting information to the chat. We're going to circle back on a couple of things, but Amina just brought up a, a, a point that I can't ignore and that's the staffing. We need to go, we need to just talk a little bit more about staffing. We know what CMS um, now is sharing on um, the CMS Care Compare website, which replaced the um, the Nursing Home Compare. That uh, we are now seeing them share information about weekend staffing, staff turnover, all of those things. So, before we go um, forward to talk about medications, can we just speak to the approaches that we are now having to take to meet these the staffing challenges. And Amina, um, you, you mentioned it, DON on a car. I need, need you to, to speak more about that. Yes, yeah. Well, staffing is a really subject dear to my heart as a nurse. Okay, we know um, as of April 16, the governor signed a new law with the new staffing requirement that we know um, Florida Healthcare did support. And when I understand what was the goal behind it, as a clinician, I see a lot of things that we could do with the new staffing model that you know allow us to um, include direct care hours of other professionals that provide direct care to our staff. Now, you have people that read the law and seeing one way and not looking at the whole big picture. I'm always asking people to please very careful. There are really good thing about this, but we have to do it in the right way. So yes, by decreasing the requirement of the ratio mandated, you know, ratio that we have for CNAs, what he does, he allows us to be more flexible on staffing and you know and providing the care so because with this we have to remember we must use our facility assessment 
because the facility assessment is the blueprint that says, this is the type of resident I care for. So therefore, based on my population, this is my staffing needs. Before we could not do that, because regardless of what you have, what is your clientele? Well, you have the 2.5 and 1.0 and just deal with it as such. But right now with adding respiratory therapies, the physical therapy with our um, speech, OT, um, social worker uh, activity, especially who meet the requirement and mental health. So based on our facility um, clientele, you can have your PPD, somebody can have CNAs that require 2.4 because you have a lot of total care, but you have another one that have a lot of more um, patients that can do things for themselves, that can be, that need less assistance, but that have a lot of behavior, that need either mental health, that need more of you know, the other discipline, so we can do that. So yes, it is right now, an opportunity to be really creative. I could use like in my organization, what we do. The first time when that happened, we didn't just drop the 2.0 because it's an opportunity for us to build our own internal staffing and kind of winning having like agency staffing because we all know continuity of care, having somebody that just come and don't know the patient doesn't help us, doesn't help the resident. And then we don't even wanna get into the financial, but if you're talking about you know, staffing and patient care, that's not really our number one or number two. That's supposed to be on the back of the bus. With this, I could tell you, at least for the past four weeks, I can see how my facilities are decreasing agencies and having and get the other discipline to be more working in collaboration with them and the direct care. So now, yes, as we're printing about staffing, I, I was just talking to somebody the other day. I just say those stuff is just not to really discourage people that the staffing issue, there is no, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Where if I wanna be realistic, this is something we're gonna be in longer than we thought, honestly. The turnover yeah. is huge. And all of those programs we're talking about, with the turnover and staffing difficulty, make it 10 times harder. Because after you take the time to teach the staff, whatever the program, clinical program you rolled out, let's say antibiotic stewardship, you get a nurse, a charge nurse, that's really good. That's come every morning and look at it and stay on top. Before you know it, this person finally bread opportunity, she's out. Now you get somebody new. You gotta start all over again. Yeah, I think the study that I would love to see is the staffing challenges that a facility is facing um, and look at the initiatives that maybe what is your what what happens to your psychotropic utilization what happens to your antibiotic utilization what happens to your efforts to um, de-prescribe your re-emissions you know um, I know we've seen small studies but if and there's there was things that CMS looked at in 2021 but I'm always like, did we miss it? Because you got to understand that there's a correlation there. Mm -hmm. There is a, a direct relationship yes. with how we're how our facilities are being staffed and the fact if we could even accomplish certain measures. Yeah, no, it's, uh, um, I agree with you. I mean, if we take the time 
I mean, I know we, I seen sitting down doing operational meetings with my facilities. You can tell sometime, even before somebody said something to you, you can turn around and go, what happened? Because sometimes I would be like, wait a minute, this unit, when I look, whatever for the evaluation or whatever used to be good. And I would call, oh, what happened? Oh yes, we have a new manager. She just started. We haven't allowed, oh, this yeah. is what happened. I think that looking at it like what's happening because it, it keeps happening. I, I wonder, and um, Lynn, I'll direct this to you first. How do we, thinking about the way healthcare is going, how do we collaborate more with um, our our fellow, our colleagues on the other side of, of just maybe sometimes the highway in the acute hospitals, you know, as we're making these transitions so that we don't have individuals on five doses of Haldol, Ativan, um, POs, Seroquel, all these different things that we see coming in when we're evaluating those medication reconciliations and trying to figure out, wait, what happened? <laughs> you know, so how do we do, how do we collaborate? What, what should that look like? One of the things that we have tried to do through one of the universities here is use the residents that are in hospitals that are near areas where the nursing homes are. They're actually reviewing medications prior to the patients being sent to the nursing homes. And that, that's actually a very useful tool. You, you've got a, a, you know, a pharmacist, he's a resident, and he's helping, he's making calls either directly to the consultant pharmacist to the physician and making his recommendations. It might sound like a very small thing, but I got to tell you the first couple of times that I got the call, it was like, hallelujah, because you know somebody actually caught it prior to the patient going into the facility. Um, the patient might've received anesthesia and maybe they had a little psychosis coming out or what, whatever the case was. Th they get admitted to the facility on this and then you have somebody giving you that info saying, hey, you know, I just heads up. This person was never on this before. Here you go. It's coming through. That's one way to collaborate is by actually using people that, you know, are, are educated and can help. The same with the medical interns. Um, yeah, I think that I think this might be a good time to share your psychotropic stewardship. Do you want me to bring that up? Sure, sure. Yeah, because I believe on here, and I'm going to make it bigger, people. <laughs> I don't know if I can make it any bigger than that, unfortunately. But there was something about proactive assessments. Right. Is that, was that the first page you had? I don't think so. Let me um, go back. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's it. So yeah, tell us what you're doing here. Okay, so a psychotropic stewardship program is a program that I had seen some questions in the past if we had numbers on implementing these programs, and I absolutely do with facilities that have adopted this. And um, I won't say the facility names, even though I think they would be honored. Um, they have gone, like I said, from 26 to 4%. We did have an increase during COVID, and that is because a lot of these residents, I, I use the term empaths, but the, the residents are very sensitive to the feelings and attitudes and anxiety 
is of the staff. And when the staff during COVID was, you know, scared, fearful, you know, we were all confused. The staff was picking up on that. And therefore you would see a lot more anxiety and a lot more um, behaviors coming out. So what we did with this psychotropic stewardship program is to make it just like the antibiotic stewardship. These are policies. Once you make a policy, it kind of locks you in to try to keeping it going. And with the staffing problems that we're having, I tried to keep it just to the relevant people. So it would be like the psychiatrist, the consultant pharmacist, the director of nursing, um, the attending physician, and then there's statements of commitment that this is the things we're going to do. And if you would go to the next one, please. Um, this is just another example. I gave you a couple different examples of um, policies that you could update, but basically it's saying this is what our facility is going to commit to. And the next one, please. All right, so very similar to the McGreers, I tried to do a psychotropic report form just for long-term care. And this can only succeed if we limit the amount of phone calls and people that can pick up the phone, agency nurses, nighttime nurses, um, just any random person picking up and calling, and you know that this occurs, they call the, the attending, not the psychiatrist a lot of times. And the attending is like, oh, sure, just go ahead. They're, they're anxious, give them blah, blah, blah. So now we must have a supervisor manager be notified of this change request for a psych med. So prior to contacting that person, that psych or prescriber, either to add, to increase, to change, you first have to know, um, notify the supervisor and rule out psych behavior. And these are some of the behaviors. Pain. I, I mean, we, we all know that pain can certainly show as anxiety and stressed out. You know, you got the wringing of the hands, COPD and dyspnea, infections. We, we go with our UTIs just as a quick example. Um, environmental readjustment, dementia and fear. You're going from a home and now you're going into a long-term care facility. That, that isn't like, we don't wake up one day and say, oh my gosh, I can't wait till I get to go to that long-term care, you know? So when we go there and we put our loved ones there, there's a lot of anxiety, fear. I'm never gonna see them anymore. They all think I'm gonna die. This is our, you know, it's, it's, it's a little negative um, outcome there, but in sleep hygiene, is it medications that are potentiating this? Are they on selegiline orally and they're dosing it at 9 p.m. when its active metabolites are methamphetamine? Um, are we giving Prozac, which could be a um, activating medication and they're getting it, just examples. So we really want to look at all these things, including doing TSHs and you know checking their diabetes, investigate and determine that the resident doesn't have any of those prior to. Then non-pharmacological. I don't think we talk about that enough in nursing homes, that there are a lot of other things other than medications. When Amina was talking about the antibiotics, I, I kind of kept thinking in my mind, you know, there was a time that if you went to the doctor and paid that copay and didn't get a script, you felt ripped off. 
you know, like I'm going to you, I need medicine, you know, whether it was viral or whatever the case is. So um, I, I think I have some non-pharmacological interventions a little bit on, but here's our behavior checklist. So looking at it, they have anxiety, do they have panic, do they have a phobia, do they have excessive compulsive behaviors, and then giving it a zero, one, two, or three, four, how, how, how is it? And one other thing is trauma. We have a lot of patients, particularly with a lot of the Afghan wars, the things that have been going on now, we're going to see a lot more people with trauma. And trauma isn't just PTSD. Trauma engulfs a whole myriad of things. And um, something that I just quickly want to share is we see a lot of elderly patients in their 80s, 90s, when they were traumatized, perhaps when they were little, whether it was psychologically, physically, sexually, there wasn't a lot of sharing and going to the psychiatrist. And, you know, this, that kind of a trauma doesn't just go away. So knowing your resident, even through changes of staff, you see that a resident is really acting out when a male comes in, it's dark at night or something else is occurring, then maybe we need to, rather than give them an anxiolytic and try to chemically sedate them, we can limit the amount of men that are going into the room if that's the trigger. It's, it's just an example. And I just wanna give one quick other example there was a resident in one of my facilities that very even keeled gentleman, but boy at night o'clock when it was shift change, it was dark outside. He would just try to climb out of bed. It, you know, it was almost like an exacerbated sundowners, but instead of just putting him on an antipsychotic, what they did was they had two people go in the room to see what was occurring. He was on the bottom floor he was a war veteran. And when people were leaving the building, the red lights, the white lights, people saying, hey, Jim, see you tomorrow. All he heard was things that were bringing him back to a war zone. So it was as simple as blacking out the window at night and the behavior stopped. So getting to know your residents, but also creating some type of a form for your staff just to help guide them. So even if you do have a new nurse and you say, okay, here you go, just if, if you see the resident acting out or doing behaviors, give us this. And then prior to contacting anybody, let us know and we'll go ahead. Could I see the next screen, please? Mm -hmm. And here is a failure mode and effects analysis. It's the FEMA. And what it does is that there's a myriad of ways to do this, but so just I'll give you one example here as a step in the process. You see a new onset or worsening behavior that's noted in the, the resident. Now, you have to be very honest with yourselves when you're doing this. This is not for the state. This is not for anyone else, but for your own building. So what would be a potential failure mode that the nurse failed to implement possible non-pharmacological interventions? Maybe they're, they're in a room where a person is screaming all night long and they can't sleep, or just as an example. So why would that potential failure occur? Because there's not a lot of time. People don't have time to be doing these things. So what's the effect of that failure? Inappropriate intervention. The nurse requests medication to increase or um, 
an invitation that, you know, there's no initiation and we don't try to reduce the residents' tendencies, behaviors. We just went right to the medication. So um, we just need training, education, and that kind of thing. So I have many different um, examples here for you to do, but when we have the staff, when you have a little bit more continuity in your staff, mm -hmm. this is one of the items that did uh, make our reductions go from 26 to 4% in two different facilities. The next one, please. Um, I just want to say that the failure occurs at the point in which the nurse places the call to the physician or, the phys or approaches the physician to report a behavior without properly utilizing all of the pharmacological options for redirecting and minimizing behaviors. That physician or psychiatrist is dependent upon the feedback he gets from the nursing staff. So if you're not doing your aptitude best, then so just by re-educating, reinforcing the staff, trying to use all non-pharmacological interventions, um, we're, we're not going to get anywhere on this. And education can come, utilize your consultant pharmacist. The consultant pharmacist has a wealth of information and they can, I mean, just for our company, we have a total library and we offer CEs as well. Whether you get them or not, it's still something that if you don't educate, it's not going to happen. And I'm not just talking about staff. Please remember, we need to educate family members. A lot of times the family members really try to direct what the treatment is going to be. You hear, every time I have a psych meeting, I hear from a lot of the nurses, oh my gosh, if we do this, you, you don't even know. I, we're going to hear from, you know, this family member. The family member cannot be the impetus for this change. Yeah. Thank you for that, Lynn. And we will be adding, you, you will all have access to the, the two handouts. Um, in the sake of time, I just want to ask one more question before we see if anyone who's listening have questions. And I'm going to direct it to Amina. Um, the preventable hospitalizations, the readmissions. You know, we've touched um, on the challenge that we're having around staffing and with medications um, leading to some of these admissions. What, what are the initiatives that um, I believe you're leading with um, some of our senior clinicians around the state to help us really tackle those things? Yeah, very good question. Rehospitalization. Um, there is so many parts of it that need to be addressed for us to be where we want to be. Um, like Lynn touched um, a very uh, key component, it's family member, because sometimes they are the one pushing to send the patient to the hospital. And I'm happy to share that the QIO, they have a link with information that education for family member which my plan is to incorporate it in that tool that I'm working with the senior clinician for rehospitalization that we can use it to teach resident legal representative and family member. So they can understand that we're not doing the patient a favor by something that we could treat 
in-house and we send the patient to the hospital. And I remember I shared with a couple of my colleagues that just a couple of weeks ago, having my mom going for something simple and I'm watching things that happen and happen and I'm like, oh my God, people, if they only knew, they will keep the patient at their safe zone in the sniff where they can receive the care and not getting subject to all those medication that's unnecessary they give them because literally at time they treat us you know, just one symptom, just a number. And then with the elderly, it comes so many other adverse, you know, reaction event that they gonna um, uh, um, experience. So return to the hospital, what we're doing is really trying to partner with education using a tool that we have some, from 2009, we have the Interact, and we know we use it and see it is a good tool if you use it the right way, you use it consistently and do the proper QAQI to track and trend and see, okay, this month I have 10 return to the hospital or 20, whatever your number may be. Why did I have that increase? Where do I have my greatest opportunity? What are my trend? Then you can go back and circle with the staff do the teaching, do the follow-up. And also it's good, I would say, for return to the hospital, even if it's on a quarterly basis, have a meeting with your physician, with your medical director being your support system, explain it to them, not because somebody called you at 10 o'clock at night <laughs> and you're like, okay, just transfer out. Or it's a Friday night or a Saturday, send it out. But my clinician, also I say, I put myself in that position. If the clinician that called me don't give me enough information to do a proper you know, um, assessment of what's going on. So you think the safest thing is to send the patient out. And where that's where the S bar came on, where the nurses, if they come, they get ready, they get the proper information to give to the physician. He helped them make better decision than sending the patient out. So yes, we know staffing once again, it's crazy, but we, by not treating those patients in-house, we're getting more work. Cause as a nurse, it's gonna take a lot of work to do the paperwork, send the patient out. And then the patient went out, end up staying longer than even expected, come back and take another three, four hours again. And then now you have somebody that come that has whatever decline in another area that we have, we're gonna have to deal with. And if we don't even wanna go there, it's the penalty with CMS. So we have, it's on our best interest and all the way through to work. Our medical director, our pharmacist, our physician and the interdisciplinary. When Lynn was talking about the psychotropic, what comes to my mind is like, sometimes we're having those meetings, those interdisciplinary meetings. We don't have those CNA that's with those patients every day. So instead of having that ad event, that CNA, have things they could share with us. Because I have a story, I'll say quickly, what a patient that was so non-compliant on so many meds, because of his behavior, he was really bad. But until one day doing round, 
the administrator find out that he lost painting. She went out, get all the stuff for him to paint, and he didn't used to go to activity. So now when it's the painting time, whatever, he comes out. He there was a night they have him expose his own work. So the guy, little by little, was off all his med. Oh, by the way, I can even say the facility, Lynn, because you um, have this facility back then is at Unity. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh. yeah. So you have a patient that was on three or four medication because he was upset with his family, the anger that he has. When we have that night that they expose for him, his family come and he made peace at them. He didn't, this didn't happen overnight, but it happened is because the administrator took the time to sit down and talk to the guy and find out that was one of his interests was art. So yes, it's gonna take a whole village to make that work. And then we need the input of everybody. Thank you. If anyone has any questions or comments, please um, ask them now while we still have time. I will say, and I know I saw someone ask me this directly, we did get to opioids. That may need to be oh. its own conversation. Yes. <laughs> because yes. That's, a, that's a lot <laughs> to talk about. But I, I do appreciate um, both of you sharing everything today. We we had this random conversation at this meeting and I couldn't get it out of my head. I'm like, I need to ask more questions of both of you. And I, I do thank you for both coming. We did have um, in the ch chat, uh, Michelle King, who um, is a pharmacy consultant who works with this, um, a psychiatric program, who's willing to, to talk and uh, give information. And I don't know, Michelle, if you had any comments you wanted to share. Hi, can you guys hear me? Yes. Great. Um, you know, one of the things that I think um, I've noticed um, as a consultant, you know, I used to work in the facilities and, and send all the reports to the director of nursing. And um, now that I'm working directly with the prescribers, it's really amazing how much I get without having to go through that middleman. You know what I mean? Of having to rely on the facility to contact the prescriber and get that GDR done and then get it back to me. So that's something that um, I think has been really helpful for me and just being able to have those conversations with the doctors. I can just call them up and say, hey, I'm looking at this patient, you know, what's going on? And they sort of have that relationship with me as well. So they'll call me about patients and, you know, ask me questions and I kind of give them my advice and sort of to um, go with what Lynn was saying earlier, those non-pharmacological methods are really, I mean, you would be surprised how sometimes just that redirection with with those things can prevent those patients from being on all these extra medications that they probably don't need. So, but, um, but yeah, I mean, and I'd, I'd love to, you know, talk with Lynn a little bit more about that if she has uh, some time, so. Absolutely. Yes, but I think we have your email um, address thanks to, I believe, Stephanie, I believe yes. that's who put it in there. So <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely get that to, um, to Lynn. Um, we had another comment about uh, the keeping residents in their in the SNF when clinically appropriate is um, so important, and the SB the SBAR communication with the provider is a great idea to reduce unnecessary transitions. I, I will definitely speak up about that when it, it was always easier to make the decision when I had the most information to keep um, to understand what was going on, and I understand the anxiety that some 
um, clinicians may have because they don't have eyes on the the patient. But you know, when you think about it, certain things that you order, even when you're taking care of someone in the inpatient setting, that may you may get that call many hours after you rounded on a person. So you have to trust what um, the information that is being presented to you. So I think that we need to think about that in a way. I love that we're educating our um, staff to really give that information because if I know and I'm getting all of their vitals and I know that that, um, that nurse knows that person much more, then it really starts shaping a plan in my head. Okay, what can I do to keep him or her in this facility? How do I approach this? What do I need to do? And even from the moment of admission, when you're getting all of those, you're getting that list of medications and you're hearing people read through, there's something that usually pops up in your head where you're like, wait a minute, what, what are they on? Why are they on this medication? Wait, go back. <laughs> let me, let me hear what, what was the logic in starting them on um, I am Haldol and uh, yeah. IV Ativan and all of these things and keeping it when they come to this facility, like, well, and knowing that we can't keep it. So doctor, can you give me a Ativan PO order? It's like, wait, no, I can't. I cannot do that for you. <laughs> Let me figure out what the what, what the logic was. So I think the more that we are educating each other, educating our clinicians, educating our um, our staff, and I love the, you know, Amina, you said the CNA wasn't in the psychotropic meeting. When I, one of my favorite meetings was the psychotropic meeting <laughs> with the, um, the pharmacist, uh, um, across, usually he said across from me and we, we would do this crazy banter. Yeah. We're like, all right, yeah. how many things are we going to stop today? <laughs> and we would have people like if someone, if the unit manager couldn't tell us what was going on, then I want to know, um, let me, can we get the CNA to come in and, and share it? And we'll table that until we can have that conversation. We need to get back to that. And I think that'll help us because when people know how valuable their roles are to taking care of our residents. I think it helps to keep everyone engaged and interested in, in their roles. And we really need to start thinking about empowering the nurses, the CNAs, because everything that they do is vital. And I know I'm on a soapbox, I'm so sorry. <laughs> can, I, oh, can I just add one thing? Yeah. I just wanted to say that we need to not be afraid to talk to the family members and particularly with psychotropics and, and antibiotics, but psychotropics, especially when as a consultant pharmacist, we have these psych meetings and we are one-on-one -on -one and we even include the social workers in the psych meetings because trust me, they are a wealth of information, um, you know, as far as admissions and what they know as, as well as the CNAs and things. And, and it doesn't get to be a big meeting, but you know, you can't be afraid of the family. So we like to have the families come in, particularly when we're trying to get somebody off of diazepam five milligrams at bedtime for sleep, you know, and, and little tricks that I've learned is just to say, well, you know, do you mind if we try clonazepam two milligrams HS, but if it's too strong, we can put you back on the Valium. It's, it's a lot of it is just suggestive, but letting, knowing of course that diazepam is much longer acting 
but when you're just telling them, hey, can we just try this and see how it works? And, um, you know, explaining to the family members why it's important. And like you said, I, I just love so much when you said we need to make people feel that they're making a difference, that they have a mission, that they are important. They're not just some person to go up and sweep the room or give a bath. I yes, yes. And I agree. The family needs to be involved. And you can, by just sitting down with them and reviewing the medications that the resident is on, you can, not only do you learn more about um, that that person, if, if someone was to tell me, oh yeah, mom always did that. You know, and I, and I tell my kids too, I say, listen, if I'm ever at a nursing home and I ask for sushi in the morning, um, I need you to make sure everyone knows that that is normal for me. You know, eggs in the evening is normal for me. I don't need an antipsychotic. I don't need to have a drug. But it is, it is really important when someone was, would tell you, oh, yeah, no, mom used to take long walks at this time. Or dad, um, you know, I think I once gave an example of the dad who was a doctor who would make morning rounds and wanted to come out and talk to the nurses in the morning because that was what he remembered doing. And so I think that we need to have those conversations. I completely agree. And um, I just thank you both for, for joining me <laughs> and having more conversations with me. This, is, this has been wonderful. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you both. It's been great. Have a great Have a day, day, everyone. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Bye. References for this podcast and links to the previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.